Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. Dr. Colin McAllister, wonderful to have you on today. Uh, could you tell us a little bit, um, how did you get uh, into your career and how did you get interested in this question of medieval apocalyptic tradition in general? Or, well, specifically for like some of the, I know that you have a book that's coming out that you edited. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for having me, PJ. Great to be here. Um, so I'm a classical guitarist and a conductor by training. All of my degrees, undergraduate and graduate degrees are, are you know, related to that. So I was, uh, I took a, uh, an interest, my brother, so I guess the, the way I really got into this was through language. So my mm. brother, my younger brother was a classics major at university. And he said, oh, this is really cool. I'm learning Latin. I'm studying all this Roman stuff and you might be interested in it. And I said, oh, that does sound cool but I was in graduate school at the time. I was really busy. And so when I finished graduate school, I went and took a three semester Latin sequence at a local community college where I was living in San Diego. It was like, okay, I've been, you know, I've been in graduate school for music. Now that I'm out, I'm going to just do something a little bit different. So I got into Latin and I was, you know, trying to read the usual kinds of authors, I guess, Caesar and Cicero and so forth. And then I became interested in some of the patristic authors, the church mm. fathers, and especially an author called Lactantius, who was a, uh, you know, he was writing during the time of the persecution of Diocletian, and he was trying to promote Christianity to the elite Roman audiences. But one of the complaints of the elite Roman audiences, as you know, is that they thought that the scriptures were written in a very simplistic kind of language, that you know, this wasn't for the elite. And so Lactantius wrote purposefully in this elevated Latin style. Mm. Uh, he was even uh, called the Christian Cicero during the Renaissance period by some of these authors who, who were looking back to Rome. Um, so I got interested in Lactantius and I was trying to read a little bit of him. And I met a colleague out here in Colorado a woman who at the time taught Greek and Latin at UCCS, a wonderful woman called Mary France. And she said, oh, this is great. You're interested in this. You might like to meet a guy I know who does all of this early medieval Latin apocalyptic stuff. And I said, yes, I would like to meet him. So he lives not too far from me up in Denver. His name is Frank Gummerlock. And he's probably done more translations than anyone of early medieval commentaries on the book of Revelation from Latin into English. So he was very excited. He said, oh my gosh, this is great that there's someone else that's interested in this. <laughs> you know, I'll send you some stuff if you want. So he and I started started collaborating a little bit. And, and that's really kind of how I got into it was through learning about these Latin uh, commentaries on the book of Revelation. And then from that, I, I kind of broadened 
my view into things apocalyptic in general mm. and you know met some other great folks along the way who were just really encouraging bernard mcginn john collins uh, lorenzo di tomaso with whom i think you had been in touch yeah and uh, all of these folks were just really encouraging and so you know it, it just kind of blossomed from there awesome uh and so as we as we look at this question of like the medieval apocalyptic tradition, what for you has stood out as probably the most important feature of it? Something that just really, what, what drives your interest in it? Well, by the, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's good to back up and just talk a little bit about the kind of origins of apocalypticism in general sure. and how it led to that. So, you know, um, apocalypticism, we can, it, it's a, uh, it's a way of, of thinking about the world, a way of thinking about space and time and human existence and the end of the world. And from that worldview, you know, if, if you are a person who has that worldview, then you might produce an apocalyptic piece of literature or work of art or piece of music or what have you. And so this, this idea of apocalypticism really came out of Second Temple Judaism. So, you know, in the period of the third to second centuries BCE in Judea. Um, and the first, at this time, the first pieces of apocalyptic literature were produced. And the, you know, these are things like uh, the book of first Enoch, um, the book of Daniel, right? The war scroll from uh, the, the, the Qumran literature. And then of course, slightly later examples that are better known, things like the book of Daniel, from the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. And then, of course, the, the, the godfather of apocalyptic literature, the revelation of John, you know, the <laughs> apocalypse of John, the last book in the New Testament. And so these are the earliest examples of apocalyptic literature. And, and out of these really emanate all these characteristics that we would associate with apocalypticism or apocalyptica writ large from that time into the medieval period and you know even into today so you know the, the medieval period what was really interesting at that time and you know we might even uh, think about kind of this long medieval millennium from maybe the fall of rome in the west to the start of the protestant reformation if we put these two kind of long markers on it and there's just so much interesting stuff that's happening because well, of course, on one hand, the book of Revelation was continuing to be interpreted by Christian exegetes all during this period for every generation. And it still happens now, right? Oh, yeah. If you go down to Barnes and Noble and go to the, I don't know, the Christian section, you'll find a book on, you know, that some contemporary author is saying, well, it turns out that the book of Revelation is actually saying that the number 666 is Joe Biden or Ukraine, <laughs> or whatever, right? So oh, yeah. the same thing is true during the medieval period. And that's really fascinating. I, I'm interested in these in this uh, commentary tradition because, uh, as, as I say, it's kind of like a Google search engine for figuring out what people were concerned with at the time. Mm. Well, is, is the book of Revelation, the turmoil, the destruction that's in there, is that referring to heretics within the church? Is it referring to the Muslim incursion uh, into, into Europe? Is it referring to the rise of the Protestant Reformation? 
right? So you can, you can read these commentaries and kind of track what folks' concerns were. So on the one hand, if you got that, on the other hand, you've got this Antichrist tradition, which is really interesting. Um, and, you know, is Antichrist a monster? Is, is it a person? Uh, who is the Antichrist? There's lots of finger pointing that goes on in, in the medieval period. You have a lot of millenarian sects that arise, groups of, of dispossessed folks who have some kind of charismatic leader that comes in who they think is the Messiah, and they go on some kind of mission or quest that usually ends in a catastrophic failure. <laughs> um, and then you have also in the medieval period, there are a number of, of tropes, of, of little ideas that developed earlier. Things like, well, I mentioned Antichrist, but also the, the end time peoples of Gog and Magog, or um, the, the legend of the last Roman emperor. And you have these little things that are recycled in all kinds of different ways across different cultures, languages, and regions uh, in that, you know, in the whole uh, larger European world. Um, and then apocalypticism, the idea about it even influences some of the early European explorers who were coming over to the new world. So I think that's what's the most interesting about this medieval period is just that it's, it's vast. There's yeah. so many things in there that you can take a look at. Um, and, and I think they're fascinating. And thank you. And I think you answered it really well. Um, for our listeners, you know, um, it's actually funny. I met my wife in Greek class, but it's been 10 years. So if I say anything in Greek, you know, just bear with me because I'm sure it's absolutely horrendous. But, um, like the word for, uh, for apocalypse is the word for revelation. That's where, right. And so that, that idea of to reveal, but it's, it's come to mean this idea of, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, of revealing the end times, the end of, end of the world. And so, and that's what kind of you're, you're hinting at, right? Like not hinting at, you're saying clearly that uh, people were talking about the end of their world. And, the, you know, for some people, it was the Protestant Reformation. For some people, it was the incursion of the Muslims, or it was heretics in the church. You know, it's like, this is the end of the world. And it's really interesting to see um, what, like you said, like you, you get this reflection of cultural fears in, in medieval commentaries, in art. Um, I definitely think of the works of, is it Bosque, the, uh, the, the painter? Um, oh, Hieronymus Bosch. Yeah, the, Bosch, like yes. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So that, uh, I, I, I am tracking with you. What's, uh, it's interesting to me, you mentioned the Second Temple Judaism. Uh, and, you know, people, if they're familiar with, uh, with theology, know about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but a lot of people don't know about the, is it the Essenes? Am I saying that right? Mm, um, yeah, the, that's the Qumran yeah. The, the folks that lived in the caves at Qumran. Yeah. Yes, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? I'm making sure that That's I'm right. tracking with you. Okay, so when, right. when we talk about the, the, the Essene, what's interesting to me is that in a lot of these cases, and you mentioned it with kind of like referencing the, the uh, Essenes or Essenes or however you say that, and then with the millenarians, that it's often this becomes this radical and force for change that often many times can fail, but it's, it, it is kind of this radical and transcendent community, right? It's this very stark way of looking at the world. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I think so. And and it's also, well, to go back to this idea of revelation. So yeah. uh, uh, apocalyptic literature is usually there are two kinds of aspects that are that are revealed. It's either the revelation of like divine mysteries. So ah. a tour of heaven or a tour of the netherworld, right? There are a lot, there are apocalyptic literature that, that, um, you know, that engages with that aspect. But then there's also this idea of the historical aspect of apocalyptic literature. You know, is it, is it talking about things that are going to happen before the end of the world or before the Messiah comes back? And, and you know, God kind of makes this eruption into the landscape of human history to, to change things forcefully. So early apocalyptic literature can kind of be based more or less in one of those two categories. But it's also, to your point, produced in circumstances of persecution or perceived persecution of some kind, right? So- the Important distinction, yes. Yeah, so, so Second Temple Judaism, of course, Judea uh, is being ruled by different peoples. Uh, there's a big war with the, you know, the Seleucid, empire there's a war with the roman empire and this is the time that you know all of these classic apocalypses were produced but in today's modern age you might have a group that for whatever reason feels that it's being persecuted by uh, morality of society you know society's morals have gone wrong we are a group that is standing true against this and that could cause you know this kind of apocalyptic thinking um or more dire examples you know you look at one of the things that when i teach my class on on apocalypticism we always talk about i usually have a couple lectures called apocalypse gone wrong <laughs> and this is the idea of groups like the people's temple or the branch davidians who felt that they were the elect, the persecuted in this end times conflagration. And of course, as we know, those situations went really badly. Um, so, so yeah, there's, uh, there's certainly an aspect of, of persecution. And yeah, I guess you might say a stark view of the world, a very dualistic view of the world is important, mm. right? Apocalypticism has within it this idea of a strong dualism between uh, you know, what is good, what is evil, what is the elect, the chosen group, who is the other? Talk about the other a lot in the mm -hmm. idea of medieval apocalypticism. You know, if you if you don't have an other, whatever that is, a person, a group, an idea that's somehow oppressing you or opposing your viewpoints as the elect, then the apocalyptic construct doesn't really work out so well. Yeah, even as as you're you're talking about that, um, it's really it's funny because my uh, my granddaddy who's been passed for a couple decades now, but like uh, even personally, like I, every time I saw him, like you know, he would talk to me a little bit, but he's like, you know, the trumpet's going to sound one of these days, you know, and it's like, uh, and it, it it's uh, it's shown up in different strands, like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is primarily abrahamic right in fact specifically judaism and christianity and, and islam too has apocalyptic aspects in it yeah. oh okay i do you, do you yeah. do some work All in that as well i'm uh 
You know, I edited the Cambridge Companion to Apocalyptic Literatures, you know, and there is an article by a fabulous colleague of mine uh, called uh, a fellow called David Cook, uh, who deals a lot with that. And so okay. I, uh, you know, I don't have that language at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he does. And um, yeah, and he works with it quite a bit. Uh, so there is. Yeah. So all the Abrahamic religions are, you know, they're teleological in the idea that there's a start to history and there's an end to history. And so, you know, if you have a circular history where things are constantly being rebirthed, there's no idea of the idea truly of apocalypticism can't hold because there can't be a, a, a finite definitive end. Yeah. And it, it seems like uh, to take it from almost a, a literary point of view that the, the there's a real... Uh, it, it's kind of like what what happens in the third act, right? Like that's what a lot of this is concerned with. And are we in the third act? And so if you're going to give one of these visions, it's always either about the third act or in most of the time it's we are in the third act, at least in the, uh, not in the, and I, I do want to ask you about the revelations of like the netherworlds and heaven, but as as far as like the the end of the world, the end times, that seems to be, that kind of obsession with that, that end. Um, did, uh, and that's something I, I hadn't thought about. Can you talk a little bit about the revelation of uh, heaven? And when you said netherworld, are there rev is that a reference to hell? Is that a reference to like purgatory? Would this count like Dante Alighieri's uh, divine comedy? Well, I think that, you know, some of these, earlier medieval uh, revelations like this, yeah, are sort of precursors absolutely to something like Dante's comedy, right? Where, yeah, it is a tour of, 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 of things that are happening in heaven, visions that are happening in heaven, rewards that wait in heaven, and then a tour of, yeah, the, the, what's, how the sinners are suffering in hell. There's, there's a, something called the Visio Sancti Pauli, uh, the vision of Paul from the early medieval period that really specifically deals with that. And if you were to read that, you'd, you'd, and, and you had also read Dante's Inferno, you, you could say, you know, see some, some uh, similarities between those kinds of things, you know, pointing out the, the sufferings of sinners. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, to, to your earlier point about feeling like the, the third act is about to happen, that's also uh, something about apocalyptic thinking that, that it's going to happen fairly soon, right? It doesn't really, you know, if I were to preach an apocalyptic sermon here in my house to my kids about <laughs> how, you know, these things, the, the world is going to end 10 million years from now. And that, you know, they're probably going to say, meh, well, well, we'll just leave <laughs> We won't eat our vegetables after all. You can't frighten us to make us eat those vegetables, right? But if I say, hey, you know, you need to eat those vegetables because the end of the world is going to happen very soon, the imminence of it, that's, that's important. So apocalyptic thought is, is concerned with the future, what's going to happen in the third act, as you say, but that's all really designed to reflect upon the present, Apocalyptic literature is exhortatory in the sense that it's trying to encourage a group of folks to continue the course, to, you know, stray from the evil ways, to, 
to eat those vegetables on your plate before you get dessert, right? One of my students actually said that, you know, you mentioned your grandfather. One of my students, I was doing a survey the first day of class and I said, oh, you know, what, is, what does apocalypse mean to you? And most of them are going with kind of more contemporary uh, rebootings of the definition about, you know, it's, yeah. oh, it's the, the aliens are going to come or it's the zombies or an asteroid's going to strike the earth or, you know, the, the, the climate is going to go into the tank or whatever. But, but one girl said that when she was little, her, her grandmother did tell her that if she didn't, you know, clean her plate or eat her vegetables, that fire and brimstone was, was <laughs> waiting. On her side. So <laughs> I said, that's a, that's a, uh, creative use of the idea of apocalypse, <laughs> you know, related to, to proper diet. Maybe I should have tried that when my kids were younger. <laughs> Fire and brimstone because you didn't eat your vegetables. There you go. I, yeah, um, got to eat those vegetables. You got to have the vitamin K. It's really, yes. really important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ba ba balanced diet to meet the end time. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think uh, part of what you're, it sounds like it's very important to create and, and you know, this has come up <laughs> And like you said, apocalypse gone wrong um, with, uh, you know, the Branch Davidians. Um, and I missed the name. Is that Jim Jones was the other one? Is that yeah, the, People's Temple. Yeah, People's the, Temple. the yeah. Forced, forced suicide. Uh, Heaven's Gate also. Uh, you might remember that, that group uh, out of San Diego who, you know, they also committed mass suicide. Yeah. And there's a sense of, it's to create a sense of urgency for radical action. Is that like, at least, <laughs> at least in those cases. But um, I mean, you know, I, I think about um, the, uh, and, and maybe uh, you can, it, when you talk about the art associated with it, um, I'm familiar with like in Luther's time, they would have like, um, not that they didn't, they called them judgment shows, I think. Where they would un they would they would unfurl posters well posters wow um they're cloth what are they called like, <laughs> they had like like a, like a tapestry or a banner yeah, tapestry. or something yes they had tapestries okay. I don't know I was like cloth posters I like, I'm like poster posters yeah, good. there you go <laughs> but uh, they would go from town to town asking like you know people to uh, give money to the church and they would have like they would act out scenes of damnation, right? Um, and the idea is to create a, a sense of urgency. Um, that that's really, and so I think you know, even as I mentioned the the tapestries there, um, I'm really curious what have you taken from your background in music? And you referenced that there is music that's apocalyptic. How have you found it? Have you found any connections there? And what kind of connections? Fine. Yes, actually. So, um, you know, for a while, this, this apocalyptic research was sort of on the side for me. I mean, I had my music thing and then I had that and they sort of were in kind of separate worlds. Hmm. And then, you know, my, my interest, kind of the interest in everything I do is, is related to the creation of artistic work. Hmm. You know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm at my core. That's what I am. I'm a, I'm a creator. I like to perform new works. I like to commission composers to create new works. I like to, you know, write music myself. And so I, there was always this urge within me to figure out like, okay, what, what are you doing with this? You're not just going to sit and translate as eighth century Latin commentary. And that's going to be the end of it. You know, I did do that, but try to, to fold this back in. So actually there's a book coming out next year published by Brill 
in their Word and Music series uh, that's called Dies Irae, Dies Illa, Music in the Apocalyptic Mode. And it's a co-edited volume by Lorenzo Di Tommaso and myself. And we got, I think it's maybe 18 authors to write on different aspects of, of what we thought was music in an apocalyptic mode. Everything from medieval settings of the Dies Irae, which is that you know 13th century hymn, whose theme, the musical theme, has been quoted in everything from Hector Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique to the score by Wendy Carlos for the movie, The Shining, the Kubrick movie, The Shining. If you watch the opening scene, you'll hear that. And that's the melody to the DACRI. So our volume covers everything from that through um, medieval settings of texts from the Sibylline Oracles to end time elements in the music of Bach and Telemann, to Richard Wagner, to Arnold Schoenberg. I wrote an article in there about early music of Arnold Schoenberg, to uh, Olivier Messiaen, his piece, The Quartet for the End of Time, hmm. all uh, through um, African-American spirituals and blues, whose lyrics were heavily driven by, you know, end time thinking by the, the promise of a better world, the promise mm. of the new Jerusalem that would supplant evil society of the present um, through Rastafarianism and the music of Bob Marley and all the way to like contemporary death metal. <laughs> so we've got, yeah, yeah that so would make sense. Whole, death metal. Yeah. whole <laughs> range of articles that are trying to engage with different aspects of of music in an apocalyptic mode. And so, you know, it's kind of in two broad categories. The easiest one to engage with, I think, is the idea of lyrical settings, right? If you have a, a contemporary Christian metal band, like there was one in the eighties called Saint, for instance, I didn't know about them, but I found out about it because of this <laughs> article that was written by a colleague. You know, they had a whole record, this band, and it's a heavy metal band, but the record is really about the book of Revelation. Hmm. So they're setting, either directly setting texts from Revelation or paraphrasing texts from Revelation about things that happen and putting in the context of a heavy metal song. So lyrical content is one thing. Um, but when Lorenzo and I first talked about this volume, I was like, but yeah, what about music? Because as a musician, the lyrics, that's different. That's not the music for me. Hmm. I'm like, well, what about music? So... So some of the articles, uh, and especially mine, are trying to deal with this idea of, okay, what could be construed as apocalypticism in instrumental music mm. itself? So that whole, yes, so it's, it's really great that, that this thinking finally led to this project, and uh, it should be coming out early next year. And I'm really excited about that because that will finally uh, prove to my musical colleagues <laughs> that, you know, I haven't just gone off the deep end the last few years in doing this uh, apocalyptic stuff, as one of my colleagues referred to it. He says, well, I don't know about that apocalyptic stuff that you're doing. <laughs> well, well, we'll bring it, we'll bring it full circle here eventually. Yeah. I, <laughs> Luckily, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's great that I do have a university who's very supportive of different research aims, you know, mm. really, um, 
even though I'm in the Department of Visual and Performing Arts and my you know, title is professor of music, there's, uh, they allow me to do all these other things. And it's, it's really been uh, very nourishing in that way. I feel like maybe if I, had, if I had been at a university where they had a big department of religious studies and a big department of, of uh, you know, I don't know, theology or something, that maybe folks would have thought, well, you're kind of stepping in our yeah. turf here. You know, back off a little bit, but I didn't encounter any of that. So I guess that's the you know blessing, really, of being at a a little bit smaller university that's encouraging of humanities in a broad way. Yeah, that's awesome. I and that's a big deal for me. Like, um, you know, people often ask, like, are, are you a philosophy podcast? And I, I have a lot of philosophy professors on this show, but for me, it's very important that as we're pursuing big questions, that we take an interdisciplinary approach. Right. Like there's there's a lot you can learn. I'm very leery of uh, pure armchair theorizing. I, I do do a lot of that, but I, I love to have when we talk about like, what does art mean for the human being? I uh, one episode in particular sticks out to me. I had a master sculptor and stone carver come on. And it's so, you know, one of the things that's easy to miss when it, when you're, you're not engaged in like performing arts and you're just thinking about art is that. Um, how much work it is <laughs> you know she was like this is like it's physically exhausting like i'm i'm carving stone you know like when you t look at pictures of her she's got like a mask on like uh like a full like you know she looks like she's about to like go into the trenches and she's just like when she's carving there's just like stone dust everywhere right and so um uh I, th that idea like I, that's really awesome your university allows you to be interdisciplinary like that and i think it sometimes takes a while for it to uh, come to fruition, but even as you're you're talking, like it, it produces these um, new uh, I wouldn't say new fields of study, but like something something special, right? Something that you wouldn't get if you just stayed in your lane, so to speak. That's really awesome. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that I think that you know, and one of the things I tell so I'm the class that I teach on apocalypticism is through our humanities program. It's under the umbrella of humanities. And yeah, that's what I tell the students is that, you know, these, this, this class is going to give you a space, a temporal and an intellectual space to think about a really important issue, hmm. right? What's going to happen after you die or what's going to happen at the end of history or the end of the world. And so by bring yeah by having this broad based approach by looking at philosophy by looking at different religious aspects by looking at cultural aspects artistic aspects you do get the most well informed view so yeah i'm i'm a huge believer in the the cooperation of all these fields in the humanities it certainly makes my life more interesting yeah yeah and i think there's a lot of value in something that's just interesting you tend to get better work if things are interesting <laughs> um uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I had not like a, this is just a random connection, but it's uh, it leads into the question I, uh, I'd love to get to eventually. But the uh, Dies Irae, I saw a video uh, essay on that uh, where someone went through and traced how that is almost always used. Even uh, we've we come to recognize it, and it, often it works subconsciously because it's a cultural motif for death. So even as you mentioned, you know, it shows up in The Shining. It'll, it, I think they showed it shows up in the Avengers, like, uh, or in one of the Marvel movies, like, but not as a main theme. It's just when someone's about to die or they're close to death, 
Like they'll like they'll put the they'll put those notes in there and it it tells the audience it's like no no no. This is serious, you know. And <laughs> what what's interesting to me about what you've been talking about is uh and this is, you know, with my work in uh philosophical hermeneutics. Oh, this is punch. No <laughs> worries. I love having a a guest on the show. Um <laughs> the uh is how much like human culture uh, you, you can see the, the things that stay the same, the things that change and the way that the same thing can go through different, like it's recognizable, but it's going through different permutations, right? Like um, uh, Dies Irae in The Shining is very different from like, I believe there's a Mozart version of it, right? Like uh, mm, probably a, a requiem. Well, you know, it was, yeah, it was part of the Requiem Mass. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So every setting of the Requiem Mass, yes. you know, by Mozart and others would have, yeah, entertained that theme. And so it's fascinating to me to, to see that. Um, can you talk a little bit more um, about uh, your, your project? And because it's fascinating to me, and that's a world I'm not familiar with, uh, how, you, how would you communicate apocalypticism through music? Like, and I know that's a you know, sneak peek into your, your your upcoming book, but that that sounds fascinating to me because, like, it, immediately in my mind, there's just a blank wall. I'm like, I have no idea. Right. Well, you know, so one just kind of if we look at a sort of broader category, for me, the idea of the ending and transfiguration of the tonal system in music mm. is a, is a, is a possible idea. So I don't know how much your viewers entertain the ideas of music and tonality, but basically, you know, if I were to just boil it down, uh, tonal music, the tonal system is a, a way of organizing pitches, chords and melody that evolved over a period of about 300 years from the late Renaissance up into the late 19th century. And essentially the idea is, oh, I don't have my guitar with me, I'd, I'd play for you, but you have a you have a home base mm. and then you have other stuff that goes on around it. And you always come back to that home base, right? So if we, if we listen to any song uh, that's, that's c composed tonally, which is most of the music we listen to, there's always this home base. So you, you, the ear is hearing other dissonant sounds that are happening around it, but you always want to come back to home base, right? And that's the tonal system. That's where you see those and, skits with uh, like musical comedians where they do like the four chord song and they go from pop song to pop song and they're not changing anything except what they're singing, right? Like it's right. that idea. It's like they use the same four chords. It always comes back to that, that beginning one. Well, that's true. So yeah, you, you do have, you know, most popular music is composed using a fairly limited number of, of chords and pitches. But that's like, you know, if you were to go and play the happy birthday song for somebody and you end it with happy birthday to and then you don't end it that's this that's that's right. because it's not ending on the tonic chord it's like oh oh you okay yeah. thank goodness <laughs> played that last chord we've come to rest yes so that very simply is a definition of tonality and what happened in general over the course of this period of time is that the system of tonality became more and more complex composers were taking us on a journey farther away 
from the tonal center and taking increasingly longer and longer periods of time to get back to it. Hmm. A famous example is Richard Wagner's opera Tristan und Isolde, where at the very beginning of the opera in the prelude, there's this a couple of chords that are played and one of them is what we call a dominant seven chord. So it's a dissonant chord that wants to resolve back to tonic. But Wagner doesn't do that. In fact, he never resolves that chord until the very end of the opera, mm. which is four hours later. Almost four <laughs> hours later, right? So the because it never resolves properly, the music constantly stays in motion. Mm. And as, as a result, it has this constant inner tension to it, which of course Wagner is mapping the music to the, the, the psychological tension, the sexual tension of the opera itself. Tristan Tussold is basically a kind of Romeo and Juliet story for folks who don't know that. And so at the very end of the opera, Tristan dies and Isolde uh, is so heartbroken that she is, she sings herself to death in this famous op uh, aria called the Liebestode. So she collapses lifeless on the body of Tristan. And then after that happens, Wagner finally resolves all of the chords into this beautiful tonic that lasts, you know, for 30 seconds or something and is repeated by all the instruments. Um, and it's this very powerful moment that's kind of like, okay, well, you know, Tristan and Isolde could never consummate their love except in death. That was the only way they could be together. And so that big final cadence, this final resolution to the tonic happens at the end of this opera. Hmm. So that was in the 1850s. And after that, composers who, uh, you know, engaged with Wagner, which almost all of them did in the 19th century, were like, okay, what are we going to do now? You know, he's taken this tonal system so far afield. Hmm. How, you know, if we are... You know, and especially that 19th century aesthetic of artists feeling like that to create art was to create something new. Right. Right. It's not this postmodern idea that you re just recycle stuff that had come before. No, it's, you know, it's the idea of modernism that you're creating, that art is steadily evolving, this kind of thing. And so a lot of these later 19th century composers were really perplexed with this idea of what to do with it. And uh, Arnold Schoenberg in particular, who's a Viennese composer who came of age in the last decade of the 19th century really started to feel that, well, maybe the way forward is to abandon tonality. Hmm. It's a big, you know, that's a big project. That's this <laughs> system that kind of held music in place for 300 years. And so he does, and my article in the book talks about specific pieces between this period from uh, 1899 till like 1909, this 10-year mm. period, where he's really feeling his way forward. For me, the music is very powerful. He's writing very intuitively. He's really grasping for something new. And finally, that's what he does end up doing is he ends up writing pieces that no longer have a tonal center. Mm. And uh, one in particular that I focus on is the last movement of his uh, of his second string quartet, which sets this really sort of apocalyptic poetry of Stefan Georga, who's a, a really interesting poet from that period. And so, so to me, 
a case could be made for thinking of apocalypse as the idea of this system just kind of implodes upon itself. And then how is it transfigured and what happens on the other side of that? Yeah. So that's, I don't know if that made sense. That's one idea kind of just in very general terms of how could you talk about the idea of apocalypse in instrumental music? Uh, the other one might be the idea of the ending of metrical time in mm. music. So again, most music that we listen to has a beat that's somewhat discernible, right? And it's organized. Uh, you know, uh, most music is organized in time because music exists in time. It's organized in time in a way that has recurring cycles of beats or recurring metrical patterns. So that if you're listening to a Mozart symphony, for instance, you can kind of snap your fingers to it or tap your head because you're hearing these, this pattern of stresses and accents within the music as it goes along. Certainly in, in uh, you know, techno music at a club, you have this yeah. bass that's <laughs> pounding like this and there's no chance at all that you're going to get lost from the music, right? right? Your, right. your whole purpose is to hear that pulse. And that's true of of most tonal music. Um, and in 1941, there was a composer who was taken uh, as a prisoner of war, a French composer called Olivier Messiaen, and he was imprisoned by the Germans. And, uh, but he was allowed, he was already at that time a well-known composer. And so the German, his German uh, uh, guards in the camp allowed him to continue to write music and they even did a performance. And so he wrote this piece. He said he was inspired because of malnourishment and poor living conditions and maybe sleep deprivation. He said he had visions of this angel from uh, chapter 10 of the book of Revelation. And so he wrote this piece, a quartet for piano, clarinet, cello, and, and, and violin called uh, Quartet for the End of Time. And he was talking about how in this passage of Revelation, the angel says, well, time will be no more. And so in this piece, he uses some compositional devices to kind of take us away from feeling where the pulse is. Hmm. Um, and so that's another example of, okay, tonality coming to an end in music, being reborn in a way, metrical time coming to an end and being in reborn. And how does that play out in later uh, music of the 20th and 21st centuries composed in that vein. So those are, those are two kind of bigger areas of how I think about apocalypticism uh, in play in instrumental music. And then I guess a third area, I mentioned earlier that I'm interested in creation of new art. That's really yeah. my whole bag. So I have commissioned some pieces to be written for me where I ask composers specifically to engage with the idea of apocalypse in these pieces mm. and how might that uh, uh, play out. So that's, that's, that's a kind of more recent project for me. And in fact, in this volume, this DS Eri volume that I mentioned to you, um, we have essays by three composers on their own pieces, short essays. You know, ah, these are pieces composed cool. in the last five years saying, okay, how did the idea of 
engagement with apocalypse inform your compositional process? So I'm really interested in that too. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, so. Just to make sure I'm tracking with you, um, you know, I I don't know a lot of music theory, but I think I know enough when you're talking about the chords and and you know. I think everyone understood from the happy birthday, you know, like that's a, that's a classic, like you go up, you play the scale and then you don't hit the last note and everyone in the right. room, everyone go. in the room is like, no, no, hit, please, please. You know? Um, right. Yeah. If you leave it there, people <laughs> are going to be like, your skin is itching. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and then even with the metrical time, you know, people uh, get frustrated that they don't have something to tap their foot to. Right. Um, and what what's interesting is, so, if I'm tracking with you, um, it seems like the like the dissolution of structure, the the falling apart of structure, uh, is in some ways um, the what what you're perceiving as the apocalypse in in instrumental music, the kind of like, and I, I think that makes sense even from like, uh, in in philosophy they'll talk about death being the end of ration, rationality, right? Like that's like. We can't perceive past death because we, we don't have we, we don't have rationality anymore, and it's almost it. it and I'm again I'm spitballing here, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. But this idea that like we are losing structure, we are losing comprehension, and it, it's invoking death in some way. It's invoking an end. Is that is that kind of what you're you're pointing at, or am I missing the point entirely? No, I think you've, I think you are, you are getting to it. And, and I would, I mean, I'm not arguing that all music that's not tonal would be apocalyptic. I'm arguing really for, for these specific moments. Cause there's more, you know, in my article about Schoenberg, I talk about this, the expressionist milieu into which he's dealing and his idea of the musical idea and the idea of genius. There's a lot of other stuff in there, but I'm, ex so yeah, I'm arguing for this this abandonment of structure at a specific historical point right. in musical evolution. I wouldn't say, but, but then of course we say, well, what's the aftermath of that? You know, this piece of Schoenberg's 1908 second string quartet had over a hundred years now of music that's being composed in all kinds of ways. So it definitely set the course, I think, of music history on a different direction. And that's, I guess, why, I would say that at that specific moment, we could maybe make an argument for that there was an apocalyptic event that happened at that time. Um, but to your, to your point more largely about loss of structure, I do think that apocalyptic thinking a lot of times is in a reflection of an individual or a group feeling that they are lost in the structure of history. Yeah. You know, Frank Kermode in a, in a, a book uh, in the 1950s said that we are born into the middle of things in medias res. So, so that we try to make sense because we are born into the middle of, of this giant continuum of history. A lot of times to orient ourselves, we are trying to somehow privilege our own generation, mm. right? Our generation is somehow more important than maybe a generation that, that came before. I think that's a natural way of, of thinking. That's an, you know, we, we hopefully want to think that somehow we are a privileged, living at a privileged point in history. And so for some people, what could be more privileged than, than ushering in the end of history yeah. 
in your own generation, right? The idea of imminent apocalypticism. Wow, our generation is going to be the one to see Christ come back, for instance, right? Yeah. That fuels a lot of apocalyptic thought in general. Uh, the sense of an ending, right? Sense of an ending. I exactly. love that book. Yeah. <laughs> a great book. Okay, yeah. so yeah, is that is that something that philosophers read too? I guess. I know. Well, I, I everybody I've, reads. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm. I've I've dabbled in like literary theory. That's kind of you know from the interpretive. Like, I mean, my side of things is interpretation, so that fit very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That idea. Um, and that's where you get the idea of the faithful few, right? When and you, you've mentioned like uh, those different ways that apocalypse gets picked up, whether it's the Protestant Reformation, Muslim incursion, um, heretics in the church, they're seeing the dissolution of the structure around them, and in order to make themselves, in some cases, feel special and to make sense of the world, uh, one of the reoccurring things that kind of threads we've talked about is you have those faithful few. And so they like, we get to be special. We're, we are the elect, you know, common, a common term. And then, you know, nothing makes you more special than you, you are like the, the few, the proud, the saviors, right? And then you have, you have some kind of climax coming, the end of the world, everything's going to end. And then the only thing that, that's missing is like the Antichrist and maybe a really nice battlefield like Gog and Magog, you know, like, it make it like it's it's really interesting to see how over and over again these things get taken in and then get uh, put out in new ways that reflect people like you take us all the way back to the beginning people's concerns and people's worries about what they see falling around them. Do you see? Uh, did you do you generally see more apocalyptic literature pop up when social structure is failing, or is that not really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, certainly the earlier examples are all in, in, in reaction to foreign rule, to mm. foreign domination. Yeah. You know. And that's where uh, you the get the of, Antichrist idea too. Like, like it's almost always the emperor or, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Antichrist is a, that's a whole separate thing that kind of, the idea of Antichrist develops along the way out of all of these, you know, some biblical texts and then and then other elements that are put up in there. So he kind of he kind of takes off on his own career of evil, um, <laughs> you know, in the you know from the early you know part of the first millennium. Um, but uh, yeah, so so the you know even without. It doesn't necessarily have to be Antichrist as this opposing force. Again, mm. that's something that developed a little later. But yeah, no, this, um, you know, this this uh, idea of that there is good and evil. Yeah. That's something actually that came out of Zoroastrianism. That's mm. that's not something that was uh, as a structural element of Judaism. But Zoroastrianism, which was a religion that predates right. actually the other Abrahamic faiths. Uh, did have this idea of a radical dualism and the idea of good and evil as really uh, constituted forces in the in the world, not just that there are evil things or bad things that happen, but that there is this force of evil somehow in the world that's opposed to a force of good. Um, so yeah, so you, you do have to have those two. And of course, uh, dom foreign domination in these early examples, mm -hmm. that's a great example of, 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 a, of a force that could be 
construed as being an evil force that's oppressing those of us who are chosen or the elect or, you know, however you want to call it, special ones. Yes, yes. Uh, and it, it uh, these narratives are often formed to keep that instead of submitting or assimilating, it, it reinforces the idea of like keeping, it's a way of uh, creating a narrative that reinforces your identity, right? In the face of foreign oppression. Yep. I'm, yeah, we see that with the, the Jews quite a bit, right? The, the, like, I mean, the Jewish identity has continued through Roman and several other dominate, like types of foreign domination. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the social, the social um, implications of apocalyptic thinking are to, to stay the course, to, to build cohesion, right? To say, okay, look at uh, maybe, you know, like Revelation is a great example, the book of Revelation, right? There's all these bad things that happen to the 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 non-elect right there's the, the tribulations and the earth is destroyed and uh, the armies and bloodbath and everything else but then at the end it's very hopeful right the new jerusalem descends from heaven the kingdom of god is proclaimed so the idea is yes that you know you i'm sorry things are bad for you now we know you're being oppressed bad stuff is happening but stay the course yeah. right stay in your group keep your faith strong because your oppressors are eventually going to get their comeuppance and you will win out in the end. So yes, there is this, uh, I think, kind of uh, hopeful aspect of, of apocalyptic literature as well, despite the fact that it's normally thought about as being you know, destructive and, and bad. Uh, I think there is a glimmer of hope in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So just uh, as we wrap up here, what is one thing that you would leave to our listeners um, about uh, apocalypse? What is something for them to, to take home and, and think through uh, that you have learned in your study? Well, I guess I would say, you know, I think, you know, going back to this idea of looking at it in a, in a kind of creative way. Mm. If you look at, for example, let's say I keep coming back to the book of Revelation, but I think that's a good example because it's it's the best known of all apocalyptic literature. And it's the one probably that our readers or our listeners would be the most familiar with, right? Everybody, even if you haven't read it, everybody's heard of 666 or the four horsemen or maybe the New Jerusalem, right? These ideas. And so I think that something like the book of Revelation has been responsible for the creation of all kinds of, of, of human thought. You know, people really interested in it, trying to figure out over the course of 2000 years, what does it mean? You know, what is it saying to us today? Uh, so there's a lot of kind of thinking about it, intellectual pursuit about it. And some of it has been very, you know, Great thinking. The, the book of Revelation is the most written upon book of the entire Bible. Mm. There have been more commentaries written on that than anything else. So it definitely sparks an interest mm. in, in us as human beings. And that also extends to the arts. I mean, you think about all the incredible art that's you, you, you opened this whole thing up with a discussion a little bit about art. You know, think of all of the paintings and frescoes and Posters, I mean, tapestries, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 
sculptures maybe and film and music and you know comic books that have been created that drew some kind of inspiration from this one mm. book that was written at the end of the first century. I think that's incredible. So I, I encourage uh, anybody who's who's interested in this to say, "Wow, you know, look at look at how influential some of this old literature has been, mm. and how it's how it's caused uh, human beings at all different times and in different places to create something new out of it." Mm. I guess that would be my thing to think about. I think that's that's cool. I don't, you know, I'm like the most optimistic person in the world. I don't, <laughs> I don't think the end of the world is happening. And and I don't, I look at the kind of positive aspects of this. I'm not a doom and gloom person. I'm I'm like, wow, look at how this has created things. And, and that that's really my interest in it. That's awesome. I can't think of a, a better way to end uh, today. Uh, Dr. McAllister, uh, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, PJ, thanks for having me. And and uh, yeah, I hope folks might follow up with some other of these things. You know, I, I guess I can give a, a shameless plug yeah. if it's okay. There is, you know, I did edit this Cambridge Companion to yeah. Apocalyptic Literature a few years ago. Has a great group of scholars. So I think if people want to find out more, this is a great resource to turn to. Yeah, and I think I might have, uh, I was talking to... Um, Dr. Tommaso, and uh, what first got me interested was the the musical one, which we'll make sure I probably isn't on pre-order yet, but uh, we'll provide some kind of link to hopefully find that too, because that's really fascinating as well. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. Hopefully, yeah, every, you know, I think publishing in general has gotten so much, everything's gotten bogged down coming out of COVID, right? Oh People yeah, kind of, for sure. So, so we are hopeful though, that, that early to mid next year it should be out it's they, they've got the whole manuscript they're just we're doing edits and stuff right now so. oh okay awesome it's coming it's coming yeah it's <laughs> it's in the it's in the tank already you know our part is basically done so awesome well thank you again have a good day all right thanks pj take care <laughs>